I want to read 1 Peter chapter 1 from verse 3 to verse 19. Just to remind us of where we've been. This is the Word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's pray. Your word, O Lord, is a sharp two-edged sword. Your word is living It is eternal, firmly set in the heavens. And I pray that you would bring your word to bear on everyone who hears. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we've learned that we who have come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are, according to verse 9, Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter, you've heard as we've read that, Peter's really focused in on this salvation. He mentions it three or four times just in these verses that we've read. There is a growing understanding of what we have received 
in Christ, but there is not just a growing understanding of what we have received in Christ, but there is a growing understanding of what we will yet receive in terms of the salvation of our souls. And so he has that right now aspect that he's using, but he also has that future aspect. But I just want you to note in verse 9 when he says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, he mentions that particularly as if it's a right now reality. A right now aspect to the salvation that we have come to receive. We who love the Lord, even though we haven't seen Him, we who believe in Him with an increasing uh, rejoicing despite not seeing Him, we have this guarantee. Right now we have this salvation and in the future, by God's grace, when we see Him, we have His guarantee that He will receive us as His own. Those who love Christ, those who believe Christ. That's how Peter describes a Christian. He refers to a Christian as one who loves Christ and one who believes in Christ even though not presently seeing Christ. And what I want this to do this morning is I want us to, to let that sit on our minds and in our hearts for a moment. A Christian loves Christ. A Christian believes Christ. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is the fact that this is how Peter refers to his readers and you've got to read this within the context, the larger context of the letter, the larger context of 1 Peter. He's saying, you readers, you love Jesus. You believe Jesus. But, we read that in the context of 1 Peter and we understand that, and we can all agree that they were, they who loved Jesus and they who believed Jesus were not without a genuine conflict of that love. A genuine conflict of that faith. Just read this letter and you'll see the things that he points to. The very ones who believe Christ, the very ones who love Christ, could have, according to verse 14 of chapter 1, a tendency toward a conformity to the lust of your former way of life. He says that. Don't be conformed to a former way of life. You love Jesus and you believe in Him. There could be this temptation, this tendency in your soul to being conformed to former lusts or in verse 1 of chapter 2, there, there might be hanging remnants of what he calls malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. In someone who loves Christ. In someone who believes Christ. Chapter 2, verse 11, we can be assured that the passions of the flesh will wage war against our soul. Someone who loves Christ and believes Christ. Chapter 4, verse 3, there can be temptations to go back to the ways of the past life. 
chapter 4, verse 9. There could even be people who grumble in the midst of serving others. People who love Christ and believe Christ. Chapter 5, verse 5. There can be an ever-present struggle wrestling against pride. So what gives? How can you love Christ and believe Christ and yet have to be given these commands? Oh, if you just love Christ, it'll just happen. You just believe Christ, it'll just happen, right? Listen, it is our love for Christ, our belief in Christ which allows us to humbly confess the reality of these things and not to ignore them, not to deny them. It's our love for Christ and it's our belief in Christ even though we don't see Him that gives us the gumption, the grit to face and fight these things over and over and over again. Peter has told us, don't forget this, Peter's told us that this salvation is rooted in the grace of God. This salvation is rooted in the grace of God, which was the very subject of the prophet's diligent research and writing. And he says it is the same message, that same message of grace, which the prophets researched and wrote about, that same message of grace, which has been announced by the apostles who were the ones who brought the gospel. And it is that same grace which is admired by the angels as they stretch forth their necks and longing to behold the wondrous work of the Lord Jesus Christ when He saves sinners. And it is that same grace, that same grace linked through the centuries That same grace that will be brought to fullness at the future revelation of Jesus Christ. Which is why Peter says, which is where we began last week. Verse 14, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are actually called, you remember we started this last week, we who have been given the grace of God and salvation are actually called to live a hopeful life. Now he says to live a hopeful life. What he does not say is to live a wishful life. Live a hopeful life, not a wishful life. That is, a hopeful life is a life of confident expectation. Which you might say, how do I live a a hope-filled life? A life of confident expectation. How can I live a hopeful life when our hearts are brimming with grief? Well, Peter says we are to have our minds prepared. That is to say, we are to have our minds ready. Dressed for action. Our minds are to be filled with the truth so that we can move with ready obedience. They they are to be prepared, but they are also to be disciplined. There are two participles there. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. And I don't think that we're to consider them as two separate participles, but I think that we're to see them as part of one another. We are prepared and dressed for action in our minds when our minds are disciplined and under the control of the Holy Spirit. 
what Peter is really saying here, and I don't know that I brought this out like I should have last week. What Peter is saying here is that you are to bring your mind under the prophetic word. Bring your mind under the prophetic word. That's the point of therefore. He just said in 10 through 12, he talked about the prophetic word. Then he says 13, therefore. And he does the same thing in, in 2 Peter. Look over at 2 Peter chapter 1 for a moment. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's, someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, you are to pay attention to the prophetic scripture until the day when Christ comes. Put your mind in the word by putting the word in your mind. He says, pay attention to it. That word, pay attention, is a word that could be used in a nautical sense. And it has the idea of holding a ship in a particular direction. It means to hold one's course toward a place. Hold your mind in place. Looking forward to the day when Christ comes. To the revelation of Christ. And do that by, by submitting your mind to the prophetic scriptures. Peter says you would do well. In other words, he says it's a good practice. It's good practice for those who are, listen, those who are fighting the presence of some doubt. That's, that's a reality here in Second Peter. He's writing to some people who are fighting the presence of some doubt and facing the attack of false teachers. That's what was happening. They had this inward problem, and they had this outward pressure. And Peter says, it is a good and faithful and suitable practice for every Christian to hold your course toward the revelation of Jesus Christ under the sure prophetic word as you fight inner doubt and face outward pressures of false teachers. And when do we do that? We do it all the way up until the day. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And that's a tremendously interesting way of speaking. And Peter, I think, has this in mind. That there is coming a day when Jesus Christ will be the final and perfect revelation and on that day, every single doubt will be erased. The day when the morning star rises in your hearts and you see Him in glorious perfection. But until that day, remember, you are kept, you are guarded through what? 
through faith. Faith is impossible apart from the Word of God. Until that day, keep your minds in the prophetic Word which speaks of the grace of our salvation. Keep your mind filled with that and you will be dressed and ready even in the midst of the greatest trials and deepest griefs. We're to live a hopeful life, friends. A life of confident expectation, confidently looking to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, back in 1 Peter chapter 1, it's really interesting. We are not to be confident in ourselves. We're not to be confident in our worth. In our merit. No, we're to look with confident expectation to Christ. Why? Because He is coming with grace. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what grace is, don't you? Grace is unmerited favor. Set your hope fully on the unmerited favor to be brought to you when Christ comes. He's coming with grace. He's coming with His unmerited favor. He is our hope. Christ has always been our hope and will always be our hope. The way to live a hopeful life is to live life in Christ. Christ is your hope. Ephesians 2.12 Remember that you were at the same time, at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, And when you were alienated from Christ, you had no hope. But coming to know Christ, Christ is your hope. Listen to Colossians 1.27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is your hope. 2 Thessalonians 2.16 Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Or 1 Timothy 1.1 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. We have hope, my friends, because we have Christ. We are banking on Him to be gracious, aren't we? We're banking on Him to be gracious. We're banking on Him to be gracious and kind. And Peter tells us in this letter of the certainty of our salvation because, listen, that salvation is all of grace and that grace is rooted in the Word of God which is breathed out by the gracious God Himself. And because of that, we are to live a hopeful life. And that's what we're fighting for. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're looking for. It's what we seek to help each other to do as we serve and sing and pray and preach. We are to help each other to hope. And I'm, I'm concerned for you today. I'm concerned for our church. I'm concerned that there may be some despair 
when it comes to hope in this place today. Maybe because of one of two reasons, or maybe because of two reasons. Some of you could be despairing of hope today, which causes a deep anguish of soul because you don't know if your faith is good enough. Some of you could be in despair because you're not sure if God is good enough or if God could actually love you. And that's a concern that I have, especially for young people who've grown up in the church. You've been a good person and all those things, but you, there's that nagging despair, anguish of soul about the certainty of your faith or the, the quality or quantity of your faith. And you're despairing. And I just want to help you if you are. And I think what I want to do is just take you to a couple passages in the New Testament, try to address those things, and then if we have time, I'll come back and this is all introduction to what we're going to get talking about in 1 Peter, but let me just show you a couple of places. Would you go with me to Luke chapter 8 for a moment? Luke chapter 8. Verse 40. Luke chapter 8 and begin reading in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him, for they were all waiting for Him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored Him to come to His house. For he had an only daughter about 12 years old, 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who, has it, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. According to Mark, this woman had consulted doctors, many doctors, and she spent everything that she had on a cure and wasn't able to find a cure. According to Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25, she was unclean according to the law. The Bible says if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Here is this woman who is in a state of perpetual impurity for at least 12 years. And she had lost everything. And there is Jesus. And in the midst of him preparing to heal another 12-year-old girl, here's a 12-year-old girl who's getting ready to die, and here's this woman with 12 years, a 
an issue of blood. As he's preparing to heal that 12-year-old girl, she just thinking if she could touch the hem of his garment, because Matthew 14, 36, they, they would implore him that they might just touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. She just saw him passing by, and she, having nothing, having lost all hope, had just a remnant of hope, hope which, 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 which was in the, the hem, the thread of his garment. And she reached out in desperate hope. There is, my point is there is nothing special about this woman. Just her utter, lasting, embarrassing impurity. And she knew it. She knew it very well. And thinking she could touch him while remaining hidden, she just reached out and touched the fringe of his garment. Why? Why did she do that? We know why. She did it because Jesus said it was done out of faith. She was humbled and trembling and just fell down in his presence when she was found out. My point is this. This isn't some great or showy thing. Just an unclean woman exhausted with her impurity and inability, grasping in desperation at the only hope that was passing her way. It didn't sound like an impressive faith in human standards. We Oh, there's got to be more. She's got to do something more. It was reaching out and grabbing the hem of his garment. Look at Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Matthew 15, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he didn't answer her a word. His disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Here's this woman who is supposed to be despised. She is a Canaanite of the worst kind from Tyre and Sidon. You see how the disciples responded to her. Lord, just get, get, I don't even want her in my sight. Get her away from me, right? She's hated. But she's crying. She's crying out for mercy. And here is one who should have no mercy. Why? Because he said, I, he told his disciples, I came as, to, to bring the kingdom to Israel, Right? We have a beautiful picture that Jesus is trying to teach them something more. He didn't just come to bring a kingdom to Israel this time. Something more pictured. He says that to his disciples. I was sent only to the house of Israel. A woman comes in crying, Lord, please have mercy on me. Is it right, Jesus says, to take the bread and give it to the dogs? Dogs was the word, the, 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 the way that, that, that the Jews were referred to the to the Canaanites. Now, he didn't use the, the word for vicious dogs. It's like the, the little dog, the, the house dog. 
Is it right that I could give the children's bread to the dogs? Just before this, Jesus had fed the 5,000 and picked up 12 baskets full of fragments. Right? And she says, she doesn't stand up and say, well, this, I demand something. This is my right. This, she just says, yeah. But you know, Lord, even the house dogs get to eat a crumb when it falls on the floor. All I'm asking for is a crumb. That's not a great faith, at least the way we would think of it. Nothing impressive about that. She's just desperate, kneeling in humility. Nothing great, no great promises, no stupendous acts here. Just a desperate woman who has no other hope. She admits her position. Yes, that's right. I'm, a, I'm an outsider. I'm, at the, I'm on the floor. I'm at the table. But I need mercy. Go back to Mark chapter 9 for a minute. Mark chapter 9 and begin in verse 15. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, this is Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Here again, we have a parent. Sometimes I wonder whether anything makes us understand the reality of our weakness better than parenthood. He, he can do nothing for his son. The disciples can do nothing, only the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and you notice the words of doubt in the Father in Mark 9.22, if you can do anything, have compassion. If you can do anything, which Jesus quickly corrects. It's not, the, the question is not in me, the question is in you. There's no doubt about Jesus' ability. The question is, does the man believe in his response? Again, not, not a response of incredible strength. Not this great amount of faith. I do believe, but help my unbelief. Nothing about anything other than his insufficiency, his weakness, his need. Let me show you just a couple more. John 6. John chapter 6, verse 60, and then verse 68. 
John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60, and then I'll skip down to verse 68. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? After, uh, I'm sorry, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Here we see the disciples. There are many who are leaving Jesus. They're walking away from Christ because Jesus had been giving this hard teaching. And so he asks his disciples if they want to go away, if they want to depart as well, to which they respond, where else are we going to go? They have this sense of the realization that there was no one else, no other way. If they're to have eternal life, it only comes from Christ. And so, no, we're not going to go anywhere else. It only, it's only in you. And then Jesus gives this puzzling response. Did I? I, I chose you. And one of you is a devil. He's reminding them. The only reason. The only reason that they say this is because of his mercy. They're dependent upon him. I keep saying one more, but one more for real. Luke 23. Luke 23, verse 32. Luke 23, beginning in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on the left, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. There were two thieves crucified with Christ. And and at one point, according to Matthew 27 and Mark 15, they were both hurling insults at Jesus. But then something changed. Something happened. Because one of the criminals, one of the thieves, looked at Jesus differently than the other. He looked at Jesus as one now. He was mocking him just like everybody else. He was insulting him just like everyone else. But now he looked at Jesus as one who was coming into his kingdom. Why? Because there's nothing on the outside in terms of looks that would have persuaded him. There is a man hanging naked, nailed to a cross. 
But something happened on the inside as his mind and heart were changed. And he stops his insulting and begins crying for mercy. And he has nothing. He has nothing to offer. Nothing to give in exchange. Simply a plea for mercy. And at one and the same time, we would say that this may not be the epitome of faith, the dying anguished words of pain and suffering, yet somehow repentant. But at the same time, it may be the most beautiful words of faith ever spoken until a few days ago. He may be the greatest display of faith. One who has nothing to offer. Receiving from one who has everything to give. And that that thief, and I'm sorry I don't know his name. I'm I'm tired of calling him that thief. I don't want to call him a thief anymore. That, That justified sinner who had... A whole 15 minutes of fruit before he, lied. he before he died. He had Jesus. He didn't have a great quantity of faith necessarily, but he had reality. And how do we know it's real? That's what we want to know, right? Isn't that what we know? I mean, maybe he wasn't real. Maybe he wasn't genuine. How do we know it's real? What do we have? We only have the words of Jesus saying, today you will be with me in paradise. Does Jesus lie? No. At the same time, the same Jesus who promised that, I don't want to say that guy, the same Jesus who promised that guy says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What does that mean? What does it mean to come to Jesus? Well, I think just from these few examples, we can say that coming to Jesus looks like desperately seeking His mercy. It means coming out of the despair for our sin and our insufficiency and hoping in Him For mercy, mercy from Him given to you on the basis of your unworthiness. Mercy based on nothing you can offer Him. Just mercy. The mercy of exchanging your unrighteousness for the eternal righteousness of the Son of God. The mercy of the forgiveness of sins on the basis of Him taking the wrath of God in your place on Himself. What? What did Jesus do every time he confronted or encountered a repentant sinner, a desperate sinner? Every time he encountered a desperate sinner who was pleading for mercy, what did he do? He was merciful. And that's what it means to hope in Christ. To confidently expect that He will meet you at every intersection and at every corner and at every turn with grace and mercy. And you just desperately come to Him pleading 
So if you're here today and you're fretting over whether or not your faith is looks like someone else's or is as big and beautiful and bulky as you would imagine it to be and you're just ah, it's not the way. If you're fretting, don't look for the quantity of your faith. Don't look for its grand display. Whatever idea you have about that, just look to Him. Look at Him in His mercy. You in your miserable sin, your despair and your desperate need, and Him in His marvelous mercy, willingly standing in your place and taking the wrath of God on Himself. If, if, if your despair is because you wonder, is your faith high enough quality? Look at these examples. And then, maybe some are despairing because you wonder whether He could love you. Well, go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You wonder if God could love you. God, who put forth His only Son as a propitiation, a wrath-bearing sacrifice, to satisfy His wrath against sin and sinners. Listen to God's Word. God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Does God love you? Look at Christ. Look at Him hanging on the cross in the place of ruined sinners. In your place. And you'll know that not only could He love you, but He does. And it's that very love that motivates you to love Him. To trust Him. That doesn't take away your suffering. It doesn't diminish your trials and dilute the grievousness of them. But gives you hope in the midst of them. And Christ is our hope. And so live a hopeful life right now enjoying the the fruits of salvation a salvation that is that is linked through the centuries in the word of god and looking forward to the coming of jesus christ when he comes with a whole new helping of grace to cover your sin 
and your insufficiency and your inadequacy and your inability. Christ, Christ, Christ. He is our life. Are you despairing today? Then come to Christ like like a father who doesn't know what to do with a demon-possessed son, a mom who doesn't know what to do with a demon-possessed daughter, a woman who's been perpetually impure, disciples who recognize they're they're only here because of mercy, like a thief nailed to a cross. Looking to Jesus coming into his kingdom. Would you do that today? Would you, right where you're seated, bow your heart, your mind, and and just link out, Link up, just just reach out in faith to this Christ. You don't need a lot. You don't need a lot of faith. You just need Christ. Would you would you reach to Him? And He says that whoever comes to Him, I'll never cast them out. You have the same assurance that that thief on the cross had. If you come to Christ today, He'll never cast you out. And that's how we live a hopeful life. A life banking on the day when Jesus Christ will come again. Would you pray with me? So Father, we ask you to seal your word in our hearts, our minds, deeply planted, rooted in our soul, and give birth to faith all over this room, reaching out and trusting Jesus. In desperate plea, for forgiveness of sin, trusting Jesus who died on the cross in our place, was buried, and three days later rose again, trusting that Jesus. Help us, O Lord, not to despair, but in the anguish of our hearts, give us Jesus. In whose name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.